You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Onyx Hunt and Onyx Maps. Now, I got to have a a little heart-to-heart with you here real quick. I used Onyx Maps on my phone every single day during the hunting season. Whether I was out west during my elk hunt, South Dakota mule deer hunt, or my rut vacation in Iowa, I was on my phone using Onyx Maps every part of the day. Whether I was looking at terrain features uh, on the topographic and and satellite maps that they offer on their uh, their app, or if I was leaving a waypoint like a watering hole or where I left my trail cameras or tree stands, or if I was marking a route from a campsite to a glassing position or from my truck to a tree stand location. I used Onyx Maps every single day, and I feel like it's an app that made my life a little bit easier. I don't know about you, but uh, there's been times in the past where I have been trying to find a tree stand based off of memory and not off of looking at a map. And uh, I I have gotten lost in the dark before. I had to wait till sunup and then, and then, you know, find it that way. But that problem does not exist anymore because of Onyx. And uh, there's a ton of other features that I think you guys need to check out. Go to onyxmaps.com and uh, check out uh, all the functionality of the app. Uh, Download it to your phone, give it a try. And when you do decide to purchase, enter the discount code NATION20, N-A-T-I-O-N-2-0. And for new users, you're going to receive 20% off. So onyxmaps.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ohio Huntsman podcast. Hopefully you had a good holiday season, you had a good Christmas, good new year, and you had some time to reflect on 2019 and are looking forward to 2020. This episode is going to be about your late season tags. So if you, if you still haven't filled your late season buck tag, we're here to help. This is, a, uh, is going to be a tactics episode on how to fill those late season tags, kind of specifically toward filling a late season buck tag, but a lot of this stuff can be used for, for anything. If, if you're still just trying to put meat in the freezer, that's cool too. You can use this information there as well. So we've got muzzleloader coming up and then a few more weeks of archery season and tactics kind of change in that late season. So we talk about some of the tactics we like to use and things that you can key on, key in on to fill some of those late season tags. One thing that we do is we use Monster Whitetail Grub. They're a sponsor of this show and they make a really great deer feed product. Their their premium feed is a high protein feed. It's got mineral mixed in. And deer are searching for calories this time of year. So feed, like Monster Whitetail Grub, can be a great way to get deer on a pattern and fill some of these late season tags. So you'll hear us talk about that as a tactic in this episode. So if you're interested in trying some Monster Whitetail Grub, there'll be a link in the show notes on how to get in touch with them and try some of their stuff. And with that, let's get into the episode. Welcome to the Ohio Huntsman Podcast, where three brothers, Jason, Jacob, and Jeff, discuss all things hunting in Ohio. 
Our goal is to be your source for accurate and reliable hunting news and conservation issues in the great state of Ohio, as well as some fun and interesting conversations along the way. This is the Ohio Huntsman Podcast. Are you listening? Okay, so today on the podcast, we're going to talk about how to how to get your late season muzzleloader buck, right? If you haven't shot your, your buck yet this season, muzzleloader season is a great opportunity to get out in the woods and hopefully fill your tag. It's kind of the, you know, we, we always kind of see it as, as the last hurrah because by that point it's pretty cold. You got you to gotta be pretty dedicated or have, um, you know, have pictures of deer on camera on a pretty consistent schedule to, uh, to bear the cold temperatures by that point to go out and sit with a bow. So for us, muzzleloader is, is usually sort of the last hurrah last chance to either just fill the freezer or if you're still trying to fill your your Ohio buck tag that's a good opportunity to do it so gonna kind of approach this like I said from the muzzleloader standpoint and the where I'm gonna start with this is practice with your muzzleloader right it, it's a, a muzzleloader yes it is a fire well I guess technically uh by the legal definition of a firearm, it's it's not a firearm, but, you know, it's a gun, but it is not a modern, you know, shotgun, straight-walled rifle, you know, put some ammo in it, shoot it, yep, we're on paper, let's let's go hunting, right? There's, there's a reloading process or a loading and or reloading process that you need to be familiar with, and you just need to know where it's going to shoot. If you shoot multiple times, you know, the barrel starts to foul and how does that affect your, your, where your shots go? The other thing is, uh, like I mentioned, reloads. So you gotta be, you gotta practice reloading, right? Try to do it quick because it's going to be cold. If you're, if you're planning to wear gloves or something, you know, heavy gloves, are you going to reload with the gloves on, are you going to throw the gloves off and, and reload without the gloves? There's just, you know, I'm just trying to point out things to people that you need to be thinking about with a muzzleloader that you don't need to think about with a, what I'll call a modern, uh, modern firearm, right? There's, uh, I'm trying to think of a, of a scenario. Well, I know of a scenario. I shot at a a doe down at the cabin. This is a lot of years ago. I peeked up over this ridge, and there stands a doe down below me. Lined up on her. Bang! You know, smoke clears, and she's still standing there. So now, it's, now I'm scrambling, right? Like, oh, i got to get reloaded, got to get reloaded. And just about the time I was getting reloaded and getting ready for another shot, she bounded off and nowhere to be seen but it's uh it's just another layer of complexity i guess that you need to be prepared for yeah i mean last year with our muzzleloader hunt that we have always done um out at our grandfather's farm um 
I we were doing a little bit of a push through a area that they had timbered and I was kind of the I don't want to say the only shooter, but I was up on a point where I could see the whole thing. So I was like the main primary shooter as they're pushing through this. And I shot as many loads as I had, and I didn't kill a single deer. (laughs) And I'm still not sure what happened. So I got to get my muzzleloader out before muzzleloader and figure out. Because I was, I mean, I, I did. We got the muzzleloaders out, and I was dead on before season so i don't know i don't know i don't have an answer as to what happened yet but i got to get it out and do some shooting i don't know if the scope got bumped in transportation i don't know if it had something to do with the way i was reloading it i have no idea i don't well, know and so that's a good yeah, point you definitely you definitely have to practice with your muzzleloader practice reloading your muzzleloader then shooting it again just to see where it's going to go because like you said it's not things are not as precision and refined as like a rifle straight wall whatever you want to you know there's a lot of more variables that can send your (laughs) bullet in a lot of different directions well and yeah and that brings up that sort of reminded me of something is you know i talked about reloading right but but there's things that you can do when practicing to, uh, I guess, make your reloads more consistent, right? So, so one thing that, that we like to do is mark your, your ramrod so that, you know, when you know you've loaded your gun properly and everything is seated properly, mark where you're with your ramrod down your barrel touching the, the top of the bullet mark where that ramrod sticks out the top of the barrel, right? You take a, you know, some sort of scribe, a knife, scrape a line, uh, whatever, however you want to mark it, but mark your ramrod so that when you're rushing to reload, you can quickly look and go, yep, that's seated all the way. I'm good to go. Because like Jake said, if you don't get that, you know, say you shot once or twice like I said, the barrel starts to get fouled. It's a little harder to get the bullet seated all the way. If that bullet isn't seated all, you know, say it's sitting a quarter inch above the powder or, or the, uh, oh, I'm blanking on the, the Pyrotex. pellets. But yeah, like the Pyrotex uh, pellets. You, it's going to be different. It's going to shoot different. If you're shooting loose powder in practice, but then going to use Pyrodex for the quicker reloads in, you know, a hunting scenario, make sure you're shooting the Pyrodex, a a few shots with the Pyrodex, just to make sure that everything is going the same place or isn't affecting your your point of impact dramatically, right? Because, you know, it could be if, if it's, especially if like, the Pyrodex is a lot older than the loose powder or, you know, things, things can change. There's, you know, moisture levels and whatnot. And so make sure that's all same, same. The one thing that, uh, we also like to use, which I'll put a link to these in the show notes cause they make reloading, especially on the fly out in the field, way easy are the 
the quick loads. So Jake, you know what these things are, right? You you put uh, and they've got a couple different styles. I like the ones that have the built-in push rod in them, so they're a little longer, like in your pocket. But basically, you put your powder down in the tube, whether it's loose powder or Pyrodex pellets. Then you put your bullet on top of it, and they they even will hold a primer. Now, I use a different primer holder. Jake, do you use that little uh, like wishbone style primer holder, or what do you use to for primers? I've last year I actually put the primer in the quick load and did it that way, but I also okay. have a wishbone that I've used in the past. Um, but basically, with that, you just got to get something that you have to find the happy medium, something that holds it tight enough that it's not going to fall, because primers are awfully hard to find when they fall down in leaves yeah and but you also don't want it too tight to where you can get it off of there and you know onto your firearm without losing it dropping it whatever it is well and the other thing i like about the the wishbone it's it's plastic so you can't do a ton of prying with it but if your primer after you shoot doesn't just fall out you can kind of use that to pull the primer out. It's not so much, it's not as much of an issue with my, my new, uh, CBA muzzleloader. Cause it's got like that, uh, closed breech, if you will, but, and think, you know, it, it just, the primers seem to just come out of that real easy and I can get my finger on the primers. You know, I can, pinch it with my fingers. Now, if you had thick gloves on, it would be nice to have something to kind of flick those out of there if you need to. But that old muzzleloader I have, those would, you know, it had like a little retainer spring and it was, it's just a different style muzzleloader. Those would, the primers would get hung up in there to where I had to pry them out of there, you know, after the, after the shot, especially if you've been shooting a little bit, you know, those things get fouled up and that primer would hang up so it was nice to have that little wishbone thing to where before i put the new primer on i could use that to kind of reach down in there flick that old primer off or you know kind of dig it out of there and then get the new primer on because you can't really do that with the quick loads right they're they're you know they the the primer typically slides into a little notch on the cap and you know they just they're not they're not long and narrow right. in that area to kind of get down in there and get a primer right off. off. Right. So, yeah. and that is something you got to pay attention to. I mean, they definitely do foul up. It's, I mean, surprising, not surprising, I guess depends how familiar you are with muzzleloaders, but, um, it's kind of surprising how fast they get fouled up and dirty. I mean, it's a messy, I mean, more modern powder burns a little cleaner, but it's not an exaggeration that when you shoot, you know, your second or third time, it's going to be significantly harder to set that bullet down because of the fouling in the barrel and just the powder residue and whatever. Well, and there always seems to be that, that, that little hump or that little hard spot to get it, you know, after you've shot a couple times, right as you're trying to seat it the rest of the way, there's always that one spot where it wants to hang up. 
you know, where you're like, okay, it's, it's seated. And then you check your line and you're like, oh no, it's not. And you got to really kind of, you know, right. pull, pull your, your, your sleeve, your hand up inside of your, your Carhartt sleeve or your jacket sleeve, you know, to, so it doesn't dig into your hand so bad and right. really push it in there to get that bullet seated. Yeah. And just to go back, kind of circle back the, with the quick load that you were referring to, um, to, I guess, drive the point home. The one that kind of has the built-in bullet starter is the ones we prefer. Um, like I said, it's a little bit longer, but again, it makes it a lot, a lot easier on a follow-up shot when your barrel's a little fouled up and the bullet's not going to just, not that it ever falls down in, but you know what I mean? It's, it can get, it can be tight. <laughs> so if you have something that can start it, and it's the same, it's almost the same motion, you know what I mean? That instead of setting the bullet in and then getting a separate bullet starter out to push it in, um, those are, and they're very affordable. I mean, they're not expensive. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, it, it prevents you from having to carry a bullet starter. Like when I'm using those quick loads, I don't carry a bullet starter with me because that quick load is my bullet starter, right? Like right. you said, you open the cap, you dump your powder in, and then, you know, it's got that built-in plunger that you just push that down and it pushes the bullet in a couple inches. And then now you've got your, you know, then comes your ramrod to seat the bullet, you know, force it down the barrel the rest of the way and seat it all the way on, you know, on top of the powder. So those are nice to have and they, uh, they make your reloads good easy i guess as easy as easy as they can be right and so you know practice using those too you know don't don't just use a a a loose powder measure while you're practicing target shooting you know and then okay i'm gonna use these quick loads because you know you kind of want to know how they work how hard you have to push that sort of thing so yeah i want to pause here for a quick second and talk about our sponsor mastin's deer sense so Mastin's Deer Sense is a premium scent product company, and they specialize obviously in deer scents, but they also have enhancer scents for predator hunting. So I know a lot of guys like to do coyote hunting in the off season, right? Once you get past deer season or you've already got your your deer tags filled. Maybe you're not listening to this episode because you've already got your deer tags filled, but If you like to do some off-season predator hunting or some late-season predator hunting, they've got you covered on that also. So check them out if that's something you're interested in, some enhancer scents for some coyote hunting, and it's good stuff. We've not used the the predator stuff, but we've definitely used the deer scents and had really good luck with them. It's good scent, and it's a good company. So it's a win-win all around. You can buy right from their website, mastinsdeersense.com, and they'll ship it right to your house. And with that, let's get back to the episode. I think that sort of uh, covers the few sort of gear things that I wanted to touch on before we get into you know actual tactics of getting on a late-season muzzleloader buck. Anything else, Jake, you want to mention there before we move on? No, I don't think so. I think we pretty much covered it all. Um, okay. I know in previous episodes, I've talked about like my little hand warmer muff. That's like my, I wear it all season, whether it's early bow or late season muzzleloader, but 
it's more important, I would say, the later in the year you get to keep your hands warm. Yeah, uh, and I want to. I've got. I want to talk about kind of clothing and and staying warm a little bit later, so we can we'll we'll sort of circle back on that in a in a minute here. So, but now, basically, you know, what we use to find a late season buck is you got to find food. You know, they're they're past the breeding stage of season, and it's very much a survival mode at that point. And so it can kind of be, you know, late season hunting, whether it's late season archery hunting or, you know, late season muzzleloader, it's, it can kind of be boom or bust, right? Like if, if you've got the food source, the, the good high calorie food source on property that you hunt, or you're able to find a food source on public land, you know, that's going to be your key to success in late season because it's very much about staying away from predators, AKA people and staying alive, AKA getting as many calories while expending as few calories as possible. Right. Right. And I mean that they're, like you said, it's survival mode. They're coming off when you get late, late season, they're a little more recovered, but they're coming off the rut where they're as wore down as they're going to be all year right. nutrition wise. I mean, you got to find the food because that's where they're going to be. Uh, especially, I mean, does and bucks, but especially the bucks that just finished rutting hard. Um, they're going to be on the food. They're going to be, you know, you got to find good high calorie food near good cover. Cause like you said, they have to survive. They got to live. Um, but the whole mantra or idea of, you know, find the does and you'll find the bucks doesn't necessarily hold true late season because the bucks don't have interest in the does anymore. Right. Um, granted, I mean, the does are going to, they, they have to survive too. And there, many of them are pregnant and have, you know, fawns that they have to take care of in terms of growing and, so getting all of the nutrition for that, but, um, the idea of chasing does and all that just does not happen late season. The bucks, they kind of separate and do their own thing. So you, but it does revolve around food. They're slaves to their stomach because they don't have, you know, a nice warm house to go back to. They have to survive the elements. Right. Um, you know what I mean? So when it's freezing cold, they're using a lot of calories to stay warm and they got to replace that on a daily basis for the most part. Yeah. And so the other key to that, that, you know, that we kind of touched on is cover, right? If, if you've got a good food source with nearby cover, if you can put yourself between those two things, it can be a really dynamite strategy for muzzleloader. Because, like you said, they're going to be trying to expend as few calories as possible getting back and forth. And, you know, obviously they're going to be trying to stay safe. But if you can put yourself between those two points, that's a good, that's a good place to be. The other thing you need to contend with, though, is if you're specifically targeting a buck late season and a mature buck is you can pretty well bet that guy's going to be 
the last deer on the food source right before last light. So you've either got to set up in a way where the non-target deer can filter past you without blowing every deer in the county out, right? You know, you get that one, that one doe that wins you and just blows and blows and blows and, you know. Right. You've got to avoid that. But if you can set yourself up in a way, which with archery is, is can be really hard to do, right? Because you've got to be kind of in their zone. With a muzzleloader, right. you can, you know, you can get back away from that a little bit, hopefully get off the main travel corridor where all the deer are filtering into, you know, say you've got a, a farm field that still has soybeans in it. You know, that's a, that's a great food source late season. If you've got that, there's going to be deer on it. And if you can figure out how or which direction they're typically filtering into the field and, you know, set up downwind of that or figure out how to get in there to where all the does and and young bucks are going to filter past you without making a big racket, spotting you, you know, winding you, whatever, then you should be in a good position to get that buck. The other thing I, you know, I will mention is there's usually snow at that point in the season. So look for tracks. If you find a big track, you can, you know, you don't want to follow it all the way to the end because there's a, you know, there's going to be a deer right there. But you can use that to get an idea of where this deer is coming from, where he's traveling, and hopefully sort of hone in on where's going to be the best spot to set up. You can also see all the tracks of all the other deer, right? And so if if all the does are, are you know, there'll be a highway of tracks, right? You don't want to set up there, right? I mean, unless your unless your objective is is meat in the freezer, then then that's where you want to be. Right. But if you're trying to fill a late season muzzleloader buck tag, you're gonna it's gonna be hard pressed for all those deer to filter by you without one of them seeing you, winding you, something, right? Right. Because it that's I mean, it gets a lot tougher, especially with bow season, late season you know, not bow season, I guess, hunting with a bow late season because there is no cover up in the tree. There's no leaves. Right. Um, so you've got to be very careful about your setups, um, you know, visibility. You can see pretty far because the leaves are off the trees, but they can see far too. <laughs> right. Um, you know, and your traditional camo is typically a leafy brown camo well that doesn't really mesh with a barren empty tree necessarily yep. um you know so there's different things you got to kind of think about because like you said if it's a snowy white out white backdrop and you're up there on a brown camo you know what i mean that not that deer can necessarily see vivid color we know they can't but you're not going to blend in and be as camouflaged as you would be early season. Right. You're a big dark blob sitting up there against a, you know, a gray white sky background and right. You know, you'll just stick out more up there. 
know, if you can find a tree that has, you know, that has held some leaves or if you can find a tree that is, you know, next to or in front of an evergreen tree that can kind of break up your outline, something that doesn't lose its, you know, if it, an evergreen tree, you know, doesn't lose its needles or whatever in the wintertime, that can be a good way to, a, a good place to set up to not get spotted as long as it's in the right place. With archery, you know, you've got to be in the right place. With muzzleloader, right, you've got more range, so maybe that is, you know, that it gives you more options. I guess is what I'm trying to say is, you know, you can pick a more ideal tree if you're gonna if you're gonna muzzleloader hunt out of a tree stand. You can pick a more ideal tree to where, one, you're not right on top of them, and two, if they do come by you, you know, you can pick a tree that has a little better cover or a little better backdrop or something where if they do come by you, they're not going to spot you as easily. The other thing to look for, you know, it's cold. They're trying to stay warm. If you can find south-facing slopes, southern exposures where they've got the last of the sun in the evening and the first sun in the morning, those can be good places, right? You know, where I where I typically see them is it's it's kind of brushy, so looking through it from ground level, you can't see very far, but it's not like it's not like closed canopy forest to where I realize that tr- the leaves are off the trees at that point, but all you know all that overhead sticks and limbs, right? It makes shadows and shade and things. If you can find kind of that brushy at ground level, but not much above brush. That's that's typically a good place for to find deer. And again, if 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 you can somehow scout a chunk of ground like that to where you can you can get around the edges of it and look for tracks, that's a good place to you know, that's a good tactic, right? You can find yep, these are a set of fresh big tracks bigger than the other tracks I've been seeing. There's a good chance that deer, you know, if they're fresh tracks, right? I mean, you, 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 you got to kind of get familiar with looking at tracks in the snow, but if they're fresh tracks, like he went in there, you know, at, at early this morning, he's in there right now. Maybe that's a good place to, to set up for an evening hunt to try and catch him coming out of there. Right. If you've done past season scouting, right, that also can help a lot with one, knowing where these late season food sources are and two you know if you've scouted some of these um you know kind of brushy but sunny areas areas that get a lot of sun in that you know that late season time frame but they're brushy at ground level because one that also helps cut the wind and it allows the sun into them right so they can lay down in there and, and stay relatively warm the other thing that we've seen is uh, sort of along those lines is terrain features. Uh, what was that? Maybe two muzzleloader seasons ago. You know, it was just a cold, snowy, blustery, windy, you know, just nasty day. Well, yeah. Grandpa's farm, you know, it's it's relatively flat, but there's a, you know, there's a creek that runs through there and there's a little drainage ravine if you will 
that the way the wind was blowing, when you were down in that ravine, the wind was, you know, sort of staying above that, right? It, it, it was, the wind was blowing perpendicular to that ravine. And so when you get down in that ravine, the wind just, you know, kind of stayed above that. And same thing, you know, we were kind of pushing through this block of timber and I think three, four deer came up out of there. Yeah. Cause it was a good place for them to get out of the cold. Yeah. And I think that, that year there was bucks, does, that was just where they were. I mean, we pushed, right. Like you said, it was three or four deer we pushed out. Of. There was at least three. I think there might've been four that was down in there that we bumped out. Well, and it's <clears throat> the, you know, it's a small area, right? So, it, it, right. you know, that's another thing to keep in mind, right? They get a lot more congregated, if you will, in these late seasons because the resources are more scarce. So if if this field is the only good food source around, all the deer are going to have to come there to get calories. And if this little ravine or this little ditch or something is the only good place to get out of the wind, then you can bet there's going to be a bunch of deer piled in there. So you can have some some encounters that you don't you don't normally have during the earlier parts of the season because of just the conditions, right? The the, the weather conditions and the the food scarcity. Right. So, I think that's I mean that's kind of where I'm at with tactics, right? That's how I typically approach that muzzleloader season. You know, as you guys know, if you've listened to, the, to our stuff, we we like to do little deer drives, little, you know, push little block of timber or whatever. And we do a lot of that for muzzleloader one, because it's a good tactic for muzzleloader and two, because then you're not sitting still for hours and hours and hours trying to stay warm in, you know, the teens, you know, type temperatures. So that kind of leads us to staying warm because if you can't stay out there, then, you know, you're not going to have much success. So, like I said, if you can get a group of buddies together and, you know, set up a few little drives or you know, push a few little blocks of timber or something. That's a great way to stay warm. You know, you just keep moving so you're not sitting stationary and free and freezing. Right. Yeah. That's definitely a, like you said, the get a group of guys together. Like that's how we, not that we haven't muzzleloader hunted in the past differently, but the last three or four years, I mean, that's our muzzleloader season is basically we go out a day you know, the three of us, our dad, sometimes we'll get a, or one of our cousins or a buddy or, you know, just a small group of guys. And we'll just push the timber, little blocks of timber between the fields. Yep. And I don't think we've had a year yet that we didn't see any deer. Yeah, no, we've, we've had, had we've pretty had sure pretty every year yeah. we've at least saw deer, whether we shoot them, have shots at them, you know, when you're doing deer drives, it's. They could go right between you and another guy, and then there's no shot and whatever. But um, every time, and we're not talking huge acreages here. I mean, these woodblock or woodlots that we're pushing are not 
most of the acreage is open field, which the deer are not going to be in. Right. So we're, these are pretty small woodlots. We do, you know, whatever, depending how many guys we have, two standers, three drivers, however you want to do it. And we just try to use terrain features or natural funnels and just like we've talked about with drives. And pretty much every year we at least get deer up to where you see deer. And anyone who does any deer hunting knows when you see deer, you tend to warm up a little bit. So plus you're walking, moving around the longest you'll be, you know, standing or on stand would be maybe an hour, depending on how far the drivers have to walk kind of out and around or whatever, but yeah. So we've had good luck with it. Yeah. Now I realize that, you know, that's not everybody's cup of tea or, you know, maybe you just don't have a group of buddies that want to do that or, or whatever the case may be. And, and you're going to go sit and hunt from a tree stand or a blind or something for muzzleloader. So Jake, why don't you kind of run through your, how to stay warm? you know, what do you do to stay warm in cold weather like that? If you were going to go sit in a blind or something. Ah, all right. Um, like I've said before and mentioned earlier in this episode, um, I have a little hand warmer. I call it my hand muff. I don't know what it's officially called, but anyone who watches sports, like I've said, it's like what the quarterbacks wear. It's just a little thing that fastens around your waist and you can put your hands in it. Um, a lot of, you know, they sell them for, it's a outdoors hunting piece of equipment. I mean, you can get it at anywhere, you, anywhere basically will have one. Um, a lot of them have pockets, like a little zipper pocket across the front that I found is nice. Um, you can put whatever you want in there, your tags, a pen, piece of paper, whatever you want to put in there. Um, I usually drop my car keys in there sometimes, depending if we're doing, you know, little short drives and we're driving around to different areas where I don't want to bury my car keys somewhere. Um, and then hot hands, hand warmers are my best friend. Um, I definitely use hot hands again inside that hand muff. Um, the, I guess the, one of the other tips that I've picked up on or heard from other people is you don't want to, it's important not to overdress before you're actually going out on stand. Uh, a lot of guys will pack all their stuff on, jump in the truck, turn the heat up cause it's two degrees outside. So they'll crank the heat all the way and they'll drive a half hour and whatever, half hour, 45 minutes, an hour to where they're going. And then they get out of a, you know, 78 degree truck into a two degree hunting stand and they're sweaty and hot and that's a good way to really freeze. (laughs) Um, yeah, I know Jason, you're really good about kind of, especially with your feet. If you're someone who your feet get cold, don't put your hunting socks on until you're actually ready to literally step out of your vehicle and go hunt wear a different pair of socks don't even put your boots on until you get there and then put your hunting socks on lace your boots up and go because that's a lot of people don't realize how much your feet actually sweat especially like i said if you're in a hot car it's blowing air right on your feet um 
It's a good way to get your feet sweaty. And once your feet are sweaty, moisture is not your friend when you're cold. You want to stay very, very dry. Because moisture, as you know, if water, when it's cold, freezes. <laughs> yep. So um, that's kind of my thing is you just want to stay dry. Layers are good. Um, and especially if you have packable layers or ability to, if you're someone who has to hike in or has a long walk to your stand, you almost want to be cold, uncomfortably cold walking in so that you're not sweating. <laughs> yeah. And then once you get to your stand, then you can put more layers on to warm yourself up because once you get sweaty or wet, you can't fix that. Yep. There's no way to come back from that when it's two degrees out. I mean, you just cannot get warm if you're moist or damp, wet. It just can't do it. I don't care how many layers you pile on top, you're still going to be cold. Yeah. Yeah, so I, you know, I do a lot of that same stuff. I also use a, a hand muff with a, a hot hands or some sort of hand warmer inside of it. Um, you can do a lot with those, with those, uh, hand warmers, right? You can, if you've got like an inside pocket in your jacket, you know, you can, you know, get one warmed up and stick it in there, kind of keep your core warm. You can put one under your hat, you know, and put your stocking cap back on and keep your head warm. There's a, I wouldn't do that. I don't, if I'm going to do any of that, I don't do it while I'm walking to my stand. Cause like Jake said, you don't want to sweat on your way to the stand. I've even gone as far as to bring an extra pair of socks. If I'm going to sit there to, you know, and I know I'm, I, you know, my feet just sweat. Right. And, and so any, any real amount of hiking, I'm going to, you know, build up some sort of moisture in my boots and my socks. And so. I've even taken a pair of dry socks with me in my bag. And then when I get there and, you know, kind of my heart rate comes down and I'm, I'm, you know, settled in, I'll then undo my boots and put those dry socks on and hunt like that. Uh, like Jacob said, you know, you kind of want to start out a little chilled. Like I, I don't, me personally, I don't want to be like frozen, frozen starting out because then I, for me, I don't, it's hard for me to then get warm when I get to my stand, but I want to be chilly, you know, when I start. And then when, as I'm hiking, I'm going to heat up and kind of get to a comfortable level, get to my stand. And I don't, I don't immediately throw my layers on. I wait for... You know, any, any of that little bit of sweat that I've built up, you know, I kind of let that dissipate, let myself cool off a little bit and then start putting layers on because the, you know, the hard part is like I mentioned earlier, if, especially if you're hunting a mature buck, there's a good chance he's going to come out last, right? He's going to let everybody else filter out into the field, make sure it's safe. And he's going to come out at the very last little bit of light which is when you've been sitting there the longest, you're almost done. You know, you get right to that, that power hour, right? The sun sets and things, it, you know, you just, 
things just instantly, all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, I am so cold. Right. Yeah. And that's right when, right when he's going to show up. So I try to plan for that, right? I know like, okay, we're getting into that last hour of shooting light. I'm going to put, you know, if I, if I don't have all my layers on at that point, I'm going to put them on because I don't want to be fooling around with layers, you know, and here he comes and I've got one arm in a sleeve and you know, it, it just can turn into a mess real quick. Yeah. So I try to plan for that and put those things on like right at, you know, that, that one hour mark, I think. The other thing I do is, especially if I, if I feel like I'm going to need to be in there for a couple, a couple hours, you know, four hours or something, even if I'm not going to, you know, like, uh, I'll be fine. I'm not going to be hungry. I'll bring snacks just as a, like a way to get my, meta- to keep my metabolism working and generating that heat. Right. So if you can have like a, like nuts, cashews or something, something that's like a high calorie kind of, um, that's going to kind of get your, your metabolism fire burning. That's another good way to stay warm. And then, yeah, those, the, the hot hands or, or whatever, you know, brand of hand warmer that you like, those are kind of my go-tos. I still don't wear a heavy, heavy glove. I just, I've not had good luck with keeping my hands warm in a heavy glove. You know, they they can be good while you're moving or something. But I find like almost once my hands get cold inside of a heavy glove, then I feel like the glove is insulating the cold in and I'm and I'm I do better just taking the glove off and putting it in a muff, which is why I, I go with a muff. Or putting them in my pockets or pulling them up inside my my coat sleeves or something like that. I don't know if, if there's any science behind that, but that's the way it feels to me. Like once my hands are cold inside of a heavy glove, I feel like now it's it's having the opposite effect. It's holding the cold in. Yeah. But that's yeah, I'm the same way. I don't I don't wear a heavy glove either. I use that. I wear a thin glove and then the hand warmer muff or whatever. Just for, it keeps my hands warm. I'm able to, you know, stay warm that way. But it's also very nice for when it comes time to either do the shooting or do the reloading. A heavy, thick pair of gloves makes it very difficult to operate the reloading process on a muzzle loader, especially when you're talking about putting a primer on. Right. I mean, you try to grab one of those with a big thick pair of gloves. It's pretty tough. So yeah. Or with any glove really. I mean, right. It's, it's right. gotta be a pretty thin pair of glove. Right. To, to deal with a primer. Um, that's why I, again, you know, with that wishbone thing, I don't really need, you know, I just need to be able to hold on to that. I don't, need to deal with a little, you know, my fingertips trying to put this little primer in the gun. Right. If any, yeah. if, the only problem with that, that I, I haven't solved yet because I haven't found the perfect pair of gloves is here comes the deer. You've got your hands out of the, out of the muff on your gun. Or if, you know, if you're 
archery hunting on your bow and there's that that waiting time right for him to either get close enough clear some brush turn broadside whatever you know you always think like oh okay here it's gonna happen and then now a couple minutes have gone by you're trying not to move because there's not a lot of cover and with those thin gloves if if they're not in the muff they get cold there in you know in a couple minutes and so it's it's always that like you know when do you pull your hands out so i would like to find and i just haven't found them yet like a medium weight glove you know it's so that it's not so heavy to where you're not going to feel heat from a hand warmer in a muff but it's thicker than a you know just a, a thin pair of poly gloves or something that uh you know will will stay warm a little bit longer when it comes to that it's time to shoot or you know you're waiting for the deer to get into the right position and you have your hands out of your muff so if anybody knows of the perfect pair of midweight gloves you know let me know <laughs> Yeah. And I know another thing we don't use or kind of even can hardly speak on because we don't do a whole lot of blind hunting for muzzleloader. Uh, I know a lot of guys swear by little heaters in their blinds. Yeah. Um, Like I said, I can't really speak on that. I mean, the idea makes sense that it would work. I would say you definitely would have to make sure you're downwind of where you think the deer is going to be because... I think you'd be fooling yourself to think that the deer can't smell that. Right. Um, you know, if you're burning a butane, propane, whatever you want to burn, but I mean, that all puts off a scent. Um, so I'd, I'd say you definitely would have to be downwind, but that obviously would keep you warm also. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Yeah. If you can, if you've got a blind to hunt out of and you can, the one thing I, I will say, and I've not, done this but if it's a blind that you know it's like a hard-sided blind that has windows that close up i i do think you want to crack a window or something because i've heard you know there's there's going to be some uh moisture that comes from that that reaction right there's there's water that comes out of your tailpipe from the burning of the fuel in your car right so there's there's some moisture that that comes out of that reaction and it'll it'll fog up all the insides of your windows so you want to crack a window i think to keep your your blind windows from fogging up on you and plus it's probably not great to be to be breathing all of those right you know those fumes those exhaust fumes burnt fumes or whatever you know so if you can kind of ventilate some fresh air in there is probably a good idea yeah i'm not entirely sure of the chemistry but i feel like that's a good way to get some sort of monoxide some oxide poisoning (laughs) (laughs) yeah something like that um, all right. Well, those are the, those are the things I wanted to touch on with, you know, staying warm, layer up. Um, you know, like Jacob said, I, I wear, you know, when we're driving to where we're going to hunt, I'll typically wear tennis shoes and, and regular socks. Or if I am going to wear warm socks, they're not the socks that I'm going to stuff down in my boots then and go hunt. I've got a separate pair of socks that are on the seat next to me. 
One thing I will say, though, is I don't like to put my boots in the trunk because your trunk, you know, is cold. And, and sometimes stuffing your feet down in a cold pair of boots, you know, like you kept your boots in the garage and then you put them in your trunk and then you go hunt. You know, stuffing your feet down in a cold pair of boots is you're trying to then warm the boots up, which is sucking heat out of your feet. You know, if you can keep them in the car, like on your on the floor, passenger side floor or something to where the floor vents are blowing on them to get them warm before you put your feet in, I find helpful. Yeah, that makes sense. What uh, do you know? What because I know you got a couple different pairs of boots. What do you know? What uh, Graham Thinsulate your like your heavy muzzleloader boots are that you that you wear? I want to say they're eight hundred. Okay, I think they're eight hundred. Um, again, at that the kind of muzzleloader hunting that we've done the last few years and that I see myself doing in the near future, it doesn't involve sitting in a stand for four hours and not moving. Right. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know if there is a pair of boots that'll keep your feet warm in, you know, negative whatever and sitting still for four hours. I, yeah. no, I think your feet are going to get, I mean, you're going to get cold. Right. You're not, humans are not designed to sit still in that temperature. <laughs> Um, I mean, you're just not just like deer aren't really designed, which is why they move. (laughs) You know what I mean? Um, but yeah, I generally, I don't do like a super heavy boot, um, because we do do a lot of walking or some walking at least, um, and getting my feet sweaty on the way in. It's a good way to make sure that the hunt is very short. Yeah. Um, you know, if we, I, we haven't been down to our cabin muzzle loading recently, but if we do, that's as anyone who's listened knows, that's hilly terrain down in the Wayne National Forest, and that's a lot of walking. And I don't care how cold it is, when you're walking from the bottom of one of those hills to the top, you're gonna work up a sweat. Um, unless you go super super slow, I guess. But I mean, it's that uses a lot of energy to get hiking up those hills so i kind of go with a medium weight boot and generally use the same pretty much the same boot all year for the most part okay yeah mine's a mine's a i think a thousand or maybe it might even be in like a 1200 but i only use that boot for muzzleloader so it it you know doesn't get a lot doesn't see a lot of use uh, but they do okay, you know, but they still, if I'm going to sit for any period of time, you know, they, they will, my feet will still get cold. One thing I haven't tried and I want to try if, if, you know, we do any sitting late season is the toe warmers. You know, they have the hot hands toe warmers that stick to the bottom of your sock or stick to the inside of your boot or whatever. I've heard, you know, good things about those to keep your toes warm, but, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm, that's one of those things I think would would work, but I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I've never used them, so I can't speak to it. But I feel like hiking in with one of those in your boot would be a bad idea. You would have to like get in, like you said, kind of get settled, change your socks, and put that on. Because if you're hiking in with a hot thing in your boot, 
your feet are going to sweat no matter yeah. what. Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, I mean, it, any, I mean, it works for your hands. It's got to work for your feet. And typically for me, my feet are what ends my hunt for the most part. My hands, I can manage to find a way to keep warm. Yeah. Like you said, whether that's pull it up inside my jacket sleeve or whatever, you know, I use my muff or, but there's ways to keep my hands warm when your feet are in a pair of boots, it's, and they start getting cold. There's no turning it around really. Yep. So. All right. Well, I think that's everything we wanted to touch on. Hopefully you guys have some, you know, if you haven't filled your muzzleloader or you haven't filled your buck tag, hopefully muzzleloader season is a, is a good opportunity to do that. And maybe some tips or, or some of the things that we talked about in here will help you be more successful with that, help you keep you out in the woods a little longer, make you more proficient with your muzzleloader. All right, that's going to do it for this week. Thank you all for listening. Really, really appreciate it. And as we go into 2020, we at Ohio Huntsman are really excited for 2020. We're going to continue to try to make the show better. We're going to try and continue to bring you guys new and interesting conversations and hunting tactics, expand our our coverage to waterfowl and do more small game and turkey content. So a wider range of content and just continue to try to make the show better. So I just want to take this opportunity to thank you guys. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening, for sharing, for engaging with us on social media. We really appreciate it, and we couldn't do it without you guys. So continue to do all that. Two thumbs up, and stay tuned for what we've got in store for uh, 2020. And with that, thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.